Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. In his essay, A Kantian Approach to Business Ethics, Norman Bowie is going to discuss Kant's first formulation of the categorical imperative, which, if you remember, runs, act always on the maxim, you can will at the same time to be a universal law of nature. And the question is, well, how does this actually apply within the field of business ethics? Is this really going to work or not? And Bowie will consider some objections and answer them that have been made to him by businessmen managers and leaders. So I mentioned that Kant has this, this particular formulation, which is typically re-articulated by business ethicists in terms of universalization. And Bowie points out that not only does it require that actions be universalizable, it requires that they be universalizable without raising some sort of contradiction. So a prime example of this, according to Bowie, is Kant's own example of making a lying promise in order to get money that you need, but you have no possibility or thereby intention of paying back. Would it be okay if I find myself in difficult circumstances? Think about, for example, a business that's likely to go bankrupt if they don't get an influx of money coming in, but they probably won't be able to pay that money back. Or a business that's just trying to extend its horizons out further so that they can keep on paying their employees for a few more months. Somebody might be tempted to say, well, I'll take out another loan. Would that be okay? And Kant says, no, no, it wouldn't be okay. Not just because it's wrong in this particular circumstance, but because if you universalize that practice of lying to get some sort of loan, making a lying promise in general, what would happen to promises? Nobody would believe anybody because everybody would feel themselves perfectly ethical or fine or prudent if they abandoned the promises that they made. And after a while, nobody would make any promises. So it would be in some ways a self-defeating action on a grand scale without one actually realizing how self-defeating that was. Bowie provides two other examples that are particularly interesting. He's got one about stealing on the part of employees. Now, it might be tempting to steal just, you know, because one is uh, one likes stealing, one likes benefiting oneself at the expense of others. But what about an employee who's getting treated badly? Stealing sometimes is a way for them to deal with their negative feelings about the firm and the situation that they're placed in. So suppose an employee angry at the boss for some justified reason considers stealing from the firm. Can you universalize the maxim which permits stealing? And Bowie says no. Why? Because goods and services are in limited supply and universal collective ownership is impossible. So therefore the institution of private property has developed. When you're stealing, you're taking somebody else's private property. So what you would be saying by universalizing that as well, whenever you feel upset or whenever you want to, you take the private property of others. What would happen in that situation is the very notion of private property breaks down because part of what's in private property is you keep your hands off my stuff. I keep my hands off your stuff, right? So he says, if everyone were free to take from everyone else, nothing could actually be owned. The very concept of ownership would break down. Another great example that he gives is breaking and then renegotiating contracts. 
prospects playing hardball, as we say, from a position of power. And he points out that GM used to do this quite a lot with their suppliers. Walmart is, is another prime example of a company that's put incredible pressure to bear on their suppliers as well. So would this tactic pass the test uh, of the categorical imperative? Bowie says it could not. Why? If a maxim that permitted contract breaking were universalized, what would happen? There wouldn't be any contracts because a contract is actually a kind of trust. I say, I'm going to do X. You say, great, I'll also do X or Y in exchange. And we both have to follow through on it. If, if either one of us can break it and renegotiate it at any time, it's not much of a contract now, is it? So these are some good examples, but then what's really going on here? He talks about the test of the categorical imperative being a principle of fair play. We have a tendency, and Kant pointed this out, to make exceptions for ourselves, to say, well, it's not okay in general, but it's okay in my case. It's okay because I'm under duress. It's okay because I need the money. It's okay because I'm doing it for a good reason. And Kant says, we need to get away from this practice of making exceptions for ourselves and realize that if, if everybody did that sort of thing, we really wouldn't have any sort of business environment to work in at all. Now, you could raise some objections, and he does, in fact, talk about executives. He says, I've used these arguments with executives who may find them theoretically persuasive, but nonetheless think that their practical application is limited in the real world of business. This is a common issue. They say, this sounds great, but how would I actually do this? People do renegotiate contracts all the time. People do steal all the time. People do make lying promises all the time. And Bowie points out something kind of interesting by way of three different examples. He says, when on vacation in Ocean City, Maryland, my favorite seafood outlet had a large sign on the wall saying, we do not cash checks and here is why. Below the sign and nearly covering the entire wall were photocopies of checks that had been returned with insufficient funds stamped in large letters. So what is he pointing out there? A certain threshold had been crossed. This is kind of a practical example of what happens when a practice starts to become almost universal. It doesn't actually have to become universalized. It just has to cross a certain threshold or attain a certain kind of critical mass. And then you can no longer do that practice. We often frame this in terms of, well, see, that person ruined it for everybody. But it's not one person ruining it for everybody. It's something becoming a common practice that ruins it for everybody. Another uh, example, sort of on the flip side of this, said when lecturing in Poland in 1995, I was informed that shortly after the, the fall of communism, there was a bank collapse. Why? Because people did not pay on their loans. Experts generally agree one of the impediments to the development of capitalism in Russia is the failure of various parties to pay their bills. Again, if you can't count on people following through, you can't attain the threshold or critical mass that's required in order to have an environment of trust in which business can actually flourish. Another great example that he uses is that of Hong Kong. He says there was a lot of speculation regarding the future of capitalism in Hong Kong now that the Chinese have regained sovereignty there. Why? Because Hong Kong had a legal system derived from the British that enforced contracts. The legal system in mainland China is much more oriented towards political influence. You might say that there's also a greater degree of corruption there, kind of a balance back and forth. There's always anti-corruption measures going on, which tells you there's a lot of corruption, right? So could Hong Kong really survive as a thriving major center of business practice? A conscience, he says, would agree with the economists here. Hong Kong would lose its premier standing as a commercial center and suffer economically if it went the way of mainland China. So 
each of these doesn't show us universalization, but it shows us something sort of tending towards universalization. And this might help us wrap our head around what Kantian capitalism would look like. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.